we're embarrassed to say that we need each other. Mm, in our that's culture. exactly right. Right? I think it's that we're embarrassed to be vulnerable. Okay. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Peggy O'Mara was the editor and publisher of Mothering Magazine from 1980 to 2011, and in 1995, she founded Mothering.com. Peggy's books include Natural Family Living, Having a Baby Naturally, and A Quiet Place. She's the recipient of the La Leche League International 2001 Alumni Association Award, the International Peace Prayer Day 2002 Women of Peace Award, the National Vaccine Information Center 2009 Courage in Journalism Award, the Holistic Moms Network 2013 Lifetime Achievement Award, and five Maggie Awards for public service journalism from the Western Publishing Association. Peggy is the mother of four adult children and grandmother of three. Well, we're so excited to talk to you, Peggy. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we'd just love to start with having you tell us, just let's go back a bit and have you tell us a little bit about how you came to be the voice of natural parenting. Well, I was really fortunate. I mean, really, it's a Cinderella story. I um, I was a young mom living in southern New Mexico. I was a hippie back to the lander. This was in the late 70s. Um, I had my kids in the mid mid to the late 70s and early 80s. And I had written an article called In Defense of Motherhood because when I had my first child, I I actually I was ecstatic. I, I had I was not prepared for the ecstasy that I would feel because all I had heard was the scary bad things. And I know you share that experience um, because of the article that you wrote in Mothering in which you described something similar. Um, so anyway, I wrote this article in defense of motherhood. I sent it to Red Book. They had a new mother's story. It was rejected. I sent it to New Age magazine. And then I went up to Albuquerque. I was living in southern New Mexico, as I said, and I saw this magazine. It, I was I couldn't believe it at Mothering Magazine. It was, I thought, why didn't I start this? Where did this come from? I picked it up. I devoured it. I sent the article to Mothering. They published it. They published a poem. And then the gal who had started it, Addie Evanson, called me up when I was pregnant with my third child and asked if I would be an editor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I was just, it was over the top. I could not even believe my good fortune. We were moving to Albuquerque. She was moving to Albuquerque from Colorado. Um, so I moved up there. Uh, I worked with her for about a year, but I couldn't. I had three kids under five. I really couldn't do very much, so I kind of quit. I did quit. Then she decided to sell the magazine, and she sold my husband and I the magazine without any down payment. In the beginning, I said, I want to put, if I put the high heels and the lipstick on this magazine, it will fly. You know, everyone will, will in a sense that I wanted to present it in a way in which the ideas were available to everybody. So it grew over time. Um, it was really small in the beginning, 3,000 uh, circulation. It ended up with 100,000 circulation. And I just addressed the issues that were in my life. And people would often say to us, oh, I can't believe that you're printing this. That's just what I've been thinking about. But we were a community of mothers that were making this magazine. And so we printed the things that were important to us. And of course, they were important to others. Um, 
and then over time I wrote my editorial. I think that helped me become the voice. And uh, it's hard for people to imagine now without the internet what it was like at that time to have something that spoke to your values and that supported you as a parent and uh, considered you the expert as the parent. Uh, people would read it. They would rip it open before they even got into their house from their mailbox. Um, it was so important to people. We got so many letters, um, and it was a community, and people felt that they could uh, contribute. They did. Uh, we printed a lot of photos of the readers in the Your Letters section. I really beefed up the Your Letters section because I really wanted to hear the voices of our community. 1980 is when I bought the magazine, um, you know, into the 2000s. I don't think I've ever to this day seen any magazine or um, read from any resource that took on such controversial topics in such a non-judgmental way. I mean, you just brought them all to the forefront for me as a mother. I think I even shared with you the story of how I opened an issue once. I was, actually, I read it from cover to cover, page by page. My friends who read the magazine said the same thing. We just absorbed it, for, starting with the first page, going to the last but there was an article about a woman who had a lotus birth, and I, I caught myself starting off that article with judgment, like, whoa, this is just, really? I mean, she never cut the cord. She just carried around that placenta attached to the baby until it, and I started off with that just classic quick judgment, and by the end of the article, I was crying. I was just, I was so deeply moved. I still revere the placenta as this incredible organ. <laughs> it's just, it just, you know, you cha- you changed me. 15 minutes at a time with each article and it was just so beautifully done with your staff of writers and it was honestly such an honor for me to um to have my first publication in the field chosen by mothering because you know your staff of writers were just so exquisite it was truly an honor Peggy, I was wow. exactly that mother. I was the one who was running to the mailbox and reading the magazine <laughs> before I even got back inside my house. It, I, I still have all my mothering yeah, magazines. Me too. I have my collection. Wow. Um, wow. I, yeah, it was, it was really the only resource that I went to as a pregnant um, mother. Well, there, there wasn't a lot out there. There wasn't, I mean, again, in contrast to the internet, there wasn't a lot of support for making your own decisions. Most of the parenting magazines were pretty uh, standard fare. You wouldn't get these controversial issues. And I really appreciate your saying that, Cynthia, about the controversial issues. That was my intention because I I knew that you couldn't wait five years for to get information about something that was important. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I had to get these topics out there because somebody could be dealing with it right now and really need that information. And, um, and Cynthia, your article, which was really, um, you said it was the first, it was published in November, December 2007, but it was really about your decision to find the kind of birth experience that you wanted after going to a birth attendant or obstetrician who had a really high cesarean rate. So again, I think that's one of the things that we hoped to do is to empower people to make their own decisions because we knew that they're the only ones that would be living with those the results of those decisions 20 years later. So I appreciate your your saying that because that's that's what we hoped to do. When my article was picked up by other magazines, we used the name Taking Charge of Giving Birth, but yours was the first version of it published, and your editor changed the name to Off Her Back, which was clever because it was implying I kind of got that obstetrician off my back who was pressuring me unnecessarily, but she took that name because when I went on the tour of the birthing center in Connecticut, the midwife said, you can birth on the bed, in the tub, in the shower. And she ultimately said, we just ask that you not give birth on your back. 
And it was just so clever that they took that anecdote from the story and made a title out of it. Well, and you got off your back. I mean, that you were positive, you know, that you were dynamic rather than passive in your birth experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had and all I those meanings. I love what they said to you. I love that they said, remember who's in charge you are. I mean, that was what people kept saying to you when you went to the midwives. They kept saying, what do you want? You're in charge. And you hadn't had that experience before. Other people were just telling you how it was going to be, what they were going to do. Birth is not an intellectual activity. Mm. It's, it's this instinctual animal experience. And so if you're really overusing your intellect, not overusing it in a bad way, but if you're really, you know, it, as is rewarded in our culture, highly intellectual, highly accomplished, you may not, you may or may not be in touch with your instincts. And that's what's going to ha- help you in birth. And so when you approach birth, you may, if you approach it kind of the way you've done everything else, you think it's A, B, C, X, Y, Z, let me do this and this will happen. You, you, <laughs> there's no other experience in life that is so unpredictable by nature. You can't control birth by nature. And you can set up all the things to have the best birth experience you can, but you can't predict exactly how it's going to be because the baby's involved. And there's, you know, it's really the baby's birth. We talk about it like it's our birth. Mm-hmm. The ba- it's the baby's birth. So um, I find the, you know, who is a woman in touch with her instinctual nature, and how does she get in touch with that if not through birth? Right. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on on this podcast, and that's, um, you know, that innate trust that a woman has to build within herself and her body and with her baby, that connection with her baby, because you're so right. It is not an intellectual process. Well, it's it's about surrender, isn't it? It's so much about surrender. Surrender the birth experience, parenting. You're always surrendering to what is. You you have these ideas of how it should be, but then you look, oh, what's going, oh, this is what's happening now. My kids are acting like this. They don't act like this other way that, you know, you make up or whatever they tell you it should be. So it's really having the courage to face what is and respond to that and come into the moment and learn and change um, as that demands. You had mentioned right at the start of this interview that your experience of being pregnant or birth or becoming a mother was ecstatic. And I just am a little curious. I want to hear more about or what your expectations were before. Was that sort of um, your natural in- inclination to feel that way about pregnancy and birth, or was it something in the process that inspired that, and how did that how did that play out for you? It wasn't my natural inclination. You know, I was, as you're describing, educated, and I mean, I had I had all these things. I, I had drawings of the birth, little places where I was going to put the bowls and the whatever I was going to heat up the towels or all the things that I thought you did. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so I wasn't like, yeah, no, it wasn't naturally my inclination, but I lived, we had a little farm. And so we had goats and chickens and the goats had babies. And I would get up in the morning and I'd go out and the goat had a baby. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay, the goat had a baby. <laughs> it just I can happened. do that. If the goat had a baby, I can do that. So I was inspired by the natural world very much. So by my cats, by the goats, especially by the goats, because it was like they were bigger and they were like having babies. And, and they had um, to give birth to hooves. I was just thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> How does anybody do that? They're, they're really pointy. They come out like eggs. <laughs> oh, please. I didn't thought about the hooves. So that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> it's so intimidating when I think about it. <laughs> but 
you know, I, again, I lived in southern New Mexico. I tried to find a midwife. Um, so I was kind of going to have this stealth home birth with these people that were maybe going to come. And it was the best that I could come up with at the time because I couldn't find, there were no licensed midwives in the state. So my birth experience, I ended up, I wanted to, to have a home birth with my midwife friends who were going to attend. Ended up in the hospital because I had a very long pushing stage. Had a satisfactory birth in the hospital. The reason that I felt ecstatic was that I didn't have any drugs during my birth. And that there's a hormonal, Sarah Buckley writes about this, Dr. Sarah Buckley from Australia. She writes about this sort of hormonal cocktail of birth that when it's undisturbed creates this ecstasy that you feel afterwards so that you are in love with the baby, so that you're ready to be a mother. That's the way it's supposed to be, that you that you get this hormonal boost to help you be a mother. So I think that's what I got, that because I wasn't drugged, when I got home, I just felt like ecstatic. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because of the hormonal chemistry that I had unleashed in, in my body by having this kind of, you know, natural experience. Because it was undisturbed. Everything was able to work together in the way that it was supposed to. When I think of my birth, it was very challenging. I was at home. I felt I you know, didn't have the right birth attendant. I ended up having this transfer and all these things. But in the sense of it being undisturbed and just going along in its own way, it definitely was undisturbed. And you're right. And that's a good word to use because I think Michelle O'Dent says that in order to bir- women want to birth in a place where they feel safe and free from dogma. And so whatever the dogma is, you want you don't want these rules. You just want to let this natural process unfold. When I had my children, I always thought after I gave birth naturally to them, I would feel some kind of ecstasy. And to my surprise, what I felt was the deepest contentedness I'd ever experienced in my life. And yeah. <laughs> it was truly it was truly a sense that everyone in the world is okay right now. Everything in the world yeah. is everyone is feeling this this peace. And I don't know if I've ever known peace like that any other day of my life. I always have a heavy heart when I think about the world's problems, but there was something really intense and irrefutable about what I felt physiologically when I was holding my newborns. So since you had that experience, did postpartum ever hit you hard? I mean, did you really just coast from that blissful hour or two right into an easy postpartum experience? Or did you ever feel kind of sideswiped by how um, monotonous or isolating it is? Or did you have community and did you circumvent all of that that so many women experience today? I think I was really lucky with my first birth. I didn't feel postpartum depression. I felt I continued to feel very good with my first birth, with my first child. Um, I did have community. I was uh, a La Leche League leader. I joined, that was pretty much the support group that was available to me, and it was a fabulous support group um, because I went to meetings every month. I saw other people breastfeeding. I could ask questions about breastfeeding. I saw mothers that were a little bit ahead of me, and then I became a mother that was a little bit ahead of others and could share my experience. So that was, um, that. I feel like Lala actually taught me how to be a mother by what I saw others doing and by also teaching me to breastfeed because breastfeeding taught me how to be a mother. By responding to my child through breastfeeding, I learned how to be a mother and what my child needed. With my other children, I mean, because I had my children close together, uh, my first two were 18 months apart and my second and third were two years apart. So as I had more children, I did feel um, more, more overwhelmed. But I was isolated. I was very isolated where I lived. I lived down this dirt road. I mean, it, but again, meeting with moms every month and being getting on the phone with moms through La Leche League, I think, were the things that 
mainly uh, gave me my community. Breastfeeding taught you to be a mother. That's, can you expand on that for us a little bit and how the way you followed your breastfeeding instincts helped you trust yourself as a mother? Well, I think as we go, when we go back to talking about the over-intellectualization of our world, um, you would think, and, and we hear in approaching feeding a child, again, these rules and these ideas of how to do it. One of them, of course, is that the baby shouldn't nurse too often. So I think by the way that, bre- that breastfeeding taught me to be a mother was that I learned to respond to the needs of my baby. So if I thought, oh, my baby should nurse every two hours, but my baby was really nursing every 45 minutes, and I responded to that, then I learned to respond to my children rather than to impose my idea of how it should be on them. And and not that I not that, that was like some easy bullet that I did right away. That's That was a whole process of being a parent is that dichotomy or that tension between how I think it should be and how it really is, as I mentioned before, and how can I align myself with how, how it really is and parent to that rather than try to impose this other thing on my children that may or may not be what's right for them. Um, what, it, what is it they really need? This was in the 1970s, the late 1970s, so we were still coming out of the 60s and the hippie time. So I had a community of people that had that I had met in this area, and we were all what we call back to the landers. So there were there were about you know five or six other couples, families that I knew. Um, so they and we had very similar values, being that we were wanted to live naturally and we wanted to kind of do our own thing and um, and we didn't buy into the commercialism of society. So I think that helped us to make decisions with our children that were that it, it, it helped us to make our own decisions, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We didn't buy into all the cultural beliefs, and so we were trying to figure out how to do things ourselves, make our own fine cotton clothing, make our own herbal remedies. Uh, So we were inclined to um, investigate things, look into things, and that community supported me as a parent. So we had a pretty close-knit community of friends, and then through La Leche League, I had my, you know, special mothering friends where I could talk more about breastfeeding and mothering and parenting. I think it's there in any community, and I think you have to find out where does that community of natural living live? How can you find that community? Because once you find someone in that community, you find all these other people, all these other organizations, all this other support. So I guess we've got La Leche League, Attachment Parenting International, Holistic Moms Network, and Mocha Moms. And you can find all of those online. I also have an article on my website about support for parents um, that people can get links to those organizations. Do you feel today's mothers are different in any way or are facing unique challenges? Um, How have things changed from what you've seen? When I was a new mom, I felt so isolated, even though I had this community. Um, I always tell the story about we had a phone, we had a party line, we had an eight party line on our phone. I mean, that's what there was back then. So... It was. Can you I explain, felt, Peggy? Can you explain that? What, what is what that? Is that? <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> What's a, <laughs> so you share your phone line with eight different people. So if you lived in a rural area, you didn't have your own phone line. Oh, you had a phone line that was shared by all these people. So you'd answer. You'd pick I up thought you meant it was like a conference call. No, no. you mean you no. all pick up the phone the and phone get in on people's conversations. Would be using the phone, oh. so you'd have to wait. Um, yeah. so, you had so, no privacy on your phone calls then, right? I mean, people could just pick yeah, up and no hear you. Oh. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, no, but, you know, and I don't think people listen. I mean, who knows? But Wait. I didn't feel that a lot. It was just that. Because why would they? Weird is that, you know, compared to the Internet. That's so, so that's one world back there. You don't even know what it is. I and, love the trust. I don't think people listened. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So you, you could hear the click, though. Oh, I mean, okay. you could hear, you know. It was obvious when somebody jumped phone. on Yeah, I mean, you had to have some manners with that kind of situation. Right, sure. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code down to birth. Okay, so you had this party but, line with eight households. So that was just to say how rural that was. And I often mm. wish that I had, I, we wrote this article, it was in the early days of mothering, and it was about this woman who woke up in the middle of the night and, with her baby, and she said, oh, God, if I could just call another mother mm. or, mm-hmm. you know, just be in touch with somebody else. And so now we have that with the Internet. We have so much connection, so much lack of isolation. But I think the downside of that lack of isolation is there's sort of this relentlessness of information. You know, you can always tap into someone else's opinion, more information, things to encourage your self-doubt. And so I think that the thing that parents now face is a lot more perceived judgment about their behavior or ideas about what they should be doing. Like these ideas that I was doing, family bed, prolonged breastfeeding, home birth, I mean, nobody was doing them back then. There was, it was not, there was no name for it. There was no attachment parenting name. There was just, we were just doing these things because we discovered they were good ideas. Um, so now there's a name for everything. You're either an attachment parent or a helicopter parent or a tiger mom or, you know, all these things that ultimately degrade parents and just sort of put them into some little box. Uh, when in fact, being a parent is, you know, it's this, improvisational experience and it's totally unique to you and maybe you pick and choose from different things but I don't think there's a whole lot of us that start out saying I'm gonna be this kind of way I mean I want to I wanted to be different than the way I'd raised I was raised I wanted to be uh, appreciative of my children's emotional experience but I didn't start out saying I was gonna be this Way, you know, a name to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like you discover yourself through the process. You keep getting to know yourself better and better. Do you sometimes feel like all of the social media, though, is a false sense of connection? Because I really worry about our postpartum moms. I think it's the guise of connection and the guise of friendship. But, you know, there's nothing like when you go to that La Leche League meeting and women are sitting on the floor breastfeeding and they've got their hair in a messy ponytail and they're happy to talk about how tired they are. And it's not like the photo shoot women are posting on Facebook where everyone else looks like they're so refreshed and that it's they're taking motherhood in stride because I don't really know that anybody does. Um, so isn't that kind of the double-edged sword? I love what you said. That's absolutely perfect. That's absolutely true. You see these pictures of breastfeeding. I'm like... 
how much could we more could we romanticize breastfeeding mm. with the you know the falling off the shoulders half <laughs> how fits up like who breastfeeds like that i love how you described that meeting of moms and that's exactly how it is so i think you're right i mean it gives you this the texting the quick ability to ask somebody a question or connect with somebody really fast can be really reassuring but nothing beats being in touch with people and being in the same room with them and it increases your feelings of well-being by being with a group of people in real life so i i agree with you and i and i and i think that moms are more isolated now even with social media i think that's so true about that they're more even more isolated because of the social media it does give that false sense of connection so it is very convenient and it does help us find information and have access to more people and more information but it also because we feel this connection through social media we don't make the effort to get face to face and we don't make the effort to create that group and you are so right you cannot replace the feeling and the connection that occurs when two people are making eye contact or when somebody reaches out their hand and puts your hand on their hand that you can't replace that no matter how good social media is yeah, and as a young mom, you need to get out of the house, you know. I mean, that just even, I, I would remember as a young mom, just walking out the door, which would usually be an event to try to get everybody ready, whatever it took, <laughs> it would be crazy. But the minute I walked out the door, I felt better. You know, I just felt more, I just didn't feel closed in. You know, I didn't, I, I felt so much better when I would get, just go even go for a walk, you know, just get out of the house. And I think, like you said about social media, it kind of, It either is glorified where we say these, like, how wonderful we are and self-important, or people are kind of ragging on themselves or complaining about things. So I think you feel a little bit hesitant to kind of have a false self on social media. So many people present a false self um, on social media that it's hard to really deeply share in that context. The other thing about social media that has concerned me for a long time is that I feel like it's increasingly become a platform for people to tell each other how beautiful they look. And that really worries me because that's something Americans are already doing too much of. And working in the postpartum field, I feel like um, when most women encounter, uh, let's say, an associate from work who had a baby or an acquaintance in the store, I feel like they believe the most supportive, complimentary thing they can say to that postpartum mom is, oh, you look like you got your body back. And it's, I I feel like saying, can we not be evaluating each other's bodies in any way? Let's not talk about that. And it's, we're already so hard on ourselves, you know, in our life after birth support group, there's always a session where women, one woman finally brings up how much she's struggling with her own changed body. And it doesn't help to walk around and have people feel that it's their role to tell you how good you look because then we just start evaluating ourselves more and that's what I feel like social media starts to become and that would ne- imagine walking into a La Leche League meeting and women are all telling each other how beautiful they look that just would never happen because it's so authentic it's just such genuine listening and accepting of one another no one's even thinking that way right I mean so I, I feel like that's something I feel like it was always a trait in American culture that is now exacerbated by this platform that we're all on. And so much more accessible. Like I said, either the ideal, either you're presenting some ideal image of yourself or you're just becoming a victim. But let's talk about then, okay, so how do we deal with social media with some kind of 
Right, because it's not going away. So in what and as ways? New mother, yeah, because it has how value. How can we use it? And I think it's like anything. You know, what's our diet? Like, what's our diet of social media? Our diet of screen time? Our, you know, you, it, you when you talk about even drug use, you know, there's use and there's abuse. There's alcohol use and there's abuse. There's what's what's the use of something that can be addictive? I think that's. I think that just by starting that conversation as an individual, rather than feeling that addictive nature of, oh, I have to look at it and somebody texting me and what's important now that can interrupt me from what's very important that I'm doing at this minute. Like even the newspaper, when I was a new mom, I couldn't, I mean, I cried if I read the newspaper. I was so open. I didn't want that much input from the outside world because it overwhelmed me. I like the term conscious or conscientious consumption. So trying to become aware and I'm struggling to teach this to my teenage daughters, um, yeah. but trying, you know, trying to become aware of how you consume your content and what it does for you. Can you self-regulate and can you shut it off? I feel so grateful that I didn't, you know, the iPhones didn't really come around until um, shortly after my daughter, my second, was born. And when I had those really lonely moments I just left the house like you did, Peggy. And it, it, we now know it is an antidote to depression. I mean, we find ourselves going outside because we just have to. We naturally gravitate. But had I had an iPhone in my hand, I'm not sure I would have even noticed the time going by. It's good when you have those moments where you say, well, I, I got to get out of here um, because yeah. that's he a healthier. Um, it's healthier and it, it will uplift the spirits more than um, that distraction. So I feel such compassion for today's moms because of course we go to the iPhone for entertainment. Of course we're looking there for connection. Mm -hmm. I just feel so much for them because they deserve so much more. They deserve fresh air and they deserve the eye contact of one another and to be in the same space. I used to see women in the grocery store if they had a baby and there was a part of me like thinking, <laughs> how weird would it be to walk over and just say, can we be friends? Can we just, <laughs> can we just take a <laughs> chance <laughs> here? Because <laughs> I just, I had such a longing to be with other women in my shoes. It just was so appealing and enticing. That um, basically happened to me. That you did that? Yeah. Um, I was at a grocery store when I had my baby and another mom approached me and she's like, I think I know you. Did we meet before? I just didn't remember her. But yeah, we apparently we met, like, I've seen her before at the library. But she approached me in a grocery store, and I was like, you know, for me, she was a stranger. <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. But yeah, we're still friends. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and, but we know the one thing at the root of all perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is isolation. Yeah. So that's what concerns me about social media, because it is this guise of being connected, but it is not the kind of connection we're looking for when we need to remove isolation. It's also not just the guise of being connected, but it's also the thing that provides the distraction to get through the uncomfortable moment exactly. of feeling lonely. And if we could yeah. sit in that uncomfortable moment of feeling lonely and not distract ourselves with some quick entertainment, could we then find a solution more easily? Would we then take the step to call the friend to actually get out and be face to face? Exactly. So, well, let's talk about, then, then let's articulate those things that a mom can do in those situations. She can go up to a mom in a grocery store that she sees and say hi and see what happens and pretend that they met before. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was all a ploy. Um, you know, she it can worked. contact these organizations and see if there's a local chapter or start one. She can go to Meetup or Facebook and see if there's any 
real in-time meetings that are happening uh, among families or moms in her community. Um, what else? She can, yeah, what else? Would she you guys can do? go to her birth educator or practitioner and ask to be connected with other moms. That's a big part of my lifestyle, um, and it changes lives when women form those connections. One thing that works really well in the postpartum support group that we do is it's a six-week program, and the women grow extremely close um, by the third or fourth week. And we always say to them around that time, if we're doing our job well, you're all going to be at each other's first birthday celebrations with each other. So what that means is that seventh week when we don't have our group anymore and you all miss it, you see each other that day. So think about it. And next week, we'd like one of you to step up and volunteer to name a location in public or open the doors to your house and allow everyone to hang out. But we want you to know now before this six-week program is over that you have plans that seventh week. I can't tell you how relieved and happy they all are and how quickly women start saying, well, you can all come to my house. And then they're making plans on their page together. So I think they need that push, that encouragement, even though they're so close in that space together, I still am concerned about the shyness that tends to ensue. So we say, no, you, it's your job, you guys. You need, now what's your plan? What are you doing that seventh week? We make that a part of the program. No, that's beautiful. It makes me cry, actually, to, because that's what I thought of as you were saying that is that we're, we're embarrassed to say that we need each other mm, in our That's culture. exactly right. I think it's that we're embarrassed to be vulnerable. Um, and Brene Brown, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know her. Sure, word. I love Brene Brown. Right? I mean, she yes. just changed my world. Totally. Like, I was like, totally. oh, I can be vulnerable? That's my greatest strength? What is she even talking about? Uh, so in our culture, we tend to be, you know, like uh, rugged individualists. We can do it ourselves. Anyone you ask about the postpartum will say, oh, you know, I'm different. You know, I'm going to be fine. I'll, I'll be good with that. They just have no idea what it's going to be like and how much rapid change will happen in those first six weeks. But I wish everyone could be having these support groups like you're offering, that they would be just normally part of the childbirth experience instead of just like, oh, you're done now, there's your childbirth education, and bye-bye. I had a client from the UK who said when they give birth over there, their midwives put them in touch with all the women in their neighborhood who had babies, and I just could have cried when I heard that. I thought that was so beautiful and thought my God, I feel like we're doing it all wrong here in so many ways when it comes to this part. The thing that keeps coming to my mind is the word permission. Like, can we just give ourselves and others permission to ask, permission to reach out, permission to need? How can we instill that message in mothers? Give yourself permission to rely on others, to create that support group, to create a space where you can be vulnerable and where you can express yourself and where you can connect. But yeah. it's that feeling in women that they, that like, you know, what you said about just like, everybody just thinks they can do it on their own. And where they think they're weak if they can't. Yes. They think they're, especially men, especially the fathers, especially in traditional male female relationships and probably in, in um, non traditional relationships as well. But going back, anyway, just I think the one partner often feels like you know especially men that they can't be weak there's no cultural message for men to be weak so they have to handle it all and very hard for them to express 10 percent of men actually experience postpartum anxiety or depression 
when you think of the lack of support for women, I can't even fathom how difficult it is for some men. We had a mom in our postpartum support group two months ago, not our current group, but we had a woman whose husband was suffering such severe postpartum anxiety that they lived across the street from a park. And he wasn't willing to cross the street with the baby to get to the park, even with as a family of three, even with his wife there. He was just terrified that a car would just come out of nowhere and mm. they wouldn't make it to the other side. And it's heartbreaking because who is he going to talk to? Who does he have to talk to? Well, no one's warning him that that can happen to him. So There are some fathers. I have an article on my website about resources for fathers. There are some groups that meet... Um, so we, same thing we're saying for moms, you know, just, uh, yeah, because I mean, I'm with you on this one. I just think this is the heartbreaker that we don't support this period. And exactly. Now that you're a grandmother, are you the same type of, quote, mother as a grandmother? Because what we experience and see so much as well is that, let's say, I'll give an example of a health conscious mom who doesn't want the child exposed to too much, let's say, television or um, unhealthy food or sugar, but the grandparent comes in like, oh, just let me spoil them a little. Let me bring lots of toys and let me buy them ice cream. And it's this unfortunate discord then between the mother and her mother. What's happening with grandparents? I mean, are they right? Do they just have better perspective to say, just lighten up a little bit? What's what happens by the time we become grandparents where we just lighten up? What do you think? You know, it's funny, I'm different with my different grandkids because with one of my grandkids, her mom is more into sugar and television and the screen than I am. So with her, I'm like wanting to limit those things and giving my daughter a hard time about that. With my other grandkids whose parents are no sugar and not a lot of screen time, then I kind of want to sneak them a little sugar. You know, <laughs> you said sneak. I did. I did. I want so, to be sort of this that, like so you're, sneaky little grandma. You know, like this little. That says so much, right there. A little troublemaker grandma, <laughs> a little bit. You know. Yeah. Well, your but own special relationship. I mean, your own special relationship with your grandchild yeah. is so. But you. Yeah. But you asked about like, but you do get looser. You do see that. Yeah, those things. But because of what I see with my kids is, you know, I mean. They didn't have sugar. We would not, we wouldn't, I think they, maybe on Sunday we would have something. I don't know. But my friend said to me, you know, I saw your kids buying uh, things out of the vending machine. Um, And then I found that my kids had a bag of candy under their bed. So I realized that my rules were backfiring. Right. So at that point, that was when I was raising my kids. I let go of all the rules. And then I found that they found themselves their way back to the natural world anyway. It's almost like you have more faith, you know, you just, you trust yeah, the you child more. more. You just, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, you trust the process more, you trust the child more. You know, you have to believe that the child is, is going to do okay, you know, and that I think by doing the best you can most of the time, you know, you're going to do a really good job. And by always keeping the love that you have for your child firm in your mind when you act, and that's going to direct your actions in the best way. Just try to trust your children, you know. You bring these children into the world. They're one of a kind. I mean, they're ne- you know, there's no one else like them in the entire history of the world that's born at exactly that moment to those parents. And then we try to make them like everybody else. 
but I think our job as parents is really instead to trust them, trust their experience, and know that we can't control all of their experience, that they're also going to have experiences and pains and go through life the way we did, trusting our kids and trusting ourselves and, you know, providing an environment in which there's it's there's safety, you know, that the home should be a place where you can fall apart, where you can come home and fall apart and not be this perfect person that the world expects you to be. Um, and, you know, again, allowing your children to have that kind of comfort in the home. Yeah, we are meant to have a rich human experience. And it's a lot of pressure for parents to put on themselves to want their child to be in a happy state all the time. May children be in a peaceful state. May they feel at peace with themselves and at peace in their lives. But we are really meant to experience all the emotions. We're supposed to know what betrayal feels like and what disappointment feels like and frustration and anger in addition to all of the positive emotions. And to try to protect them from that human experience is to rob them of something, not to mention it's impossible anyway so it's almost putting pressure on them that that we have expectations that that they should be in that happy state all the time yeah yeah for sure so peggy can you tell us a little bit about what's happening for you today are there any projects that you are in the thick of right now well i think you know you know i've just been doing this my whole life i've been doing my own website called peggyomera.com so i've been still publishing the same kinds of articles that i hope will be hopefully helpful to parents I've started working, doing some volunteer work with Family and Home Network. So I'm learning about family policy on the national level. And I've always felt that we needed some kind of leave for parents, some kind of direct payments to benefits to parents. Um, And I started to write fiction, which is something I wanted to do always and just never really had the confidence to do. And uh, I'm happy to say that I've finished a children's adventure book for eight to 12 year olds. So I'm still busy on the web and uh, addressing issues that are of concern to parents. I, you know, one of the things I want to write about now is everything's all right. You know, there's so much fear in the culture and fear about the future with the climate change. And there's, again, so much good news on those, all those fronts. And, but also by just encouraging people to just drop into their own family and their own lives and let that be enough. Wonderful. Well, Peggy, you're a living legend. It's such a thrill to speak with you. You always wish that the young mothers of today could could see all the lives you've touched and how you've shaped Mm. us as mothers and how we've modified our decisions. And you've given us a voice to just forge our own path and do our research and do things differently because we've all been there. We've all been that person who was a little more conscientious than maybe the mainstream at times. And to have the confidence and support in doing that is priceless. And thank you for being our inspiration. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtoburthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Oh, I just.
just love talking to both of you. You are inspiring to me as well to see these ideas spread so well. It's just overwhelming for me, really. And I, I guess what we've learned, what, we, what you're talking about, and what I think Mothering tried to talk about and what you're talking about in your own lives is really trusting yourself as a parent, trusting yourself as a person. So that's what I would say to young parents is to trust themselves.